Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website. That is bigamateurism.com. My podcast can also be found on the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And you can check out my blog as well at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Monday, January 3rd, 2022. And actually, there's a lull in the action. We got a week between the CFP semifinals and the championship game next Monday. And the bowl games are over, I think, aren't they? Please tell me that they are. I'm not a huge fan of bowl season. The NCAA seems to be on break for the holidays. There's nothing new on their website. And remember, the NCAA on January 20th is supposed to hold its convention. At that convention, they're going to vote to ratify the new constitution. And I had thought about in this interim period talking about some of the issues that relate to this new constitution, but I think I'm going to keep my powder dry on that until after this vote to see if there are any surprises, any new issues that have come up, and to confirm that the last draft of the constitution that came out, there were actually three documents, one that came out November 8th, then one, I think, on December 7th, and then a third draft on December 14th. I really didn't talk about that very much. There are a couple of interesting things there. I'm just going to hold off on on deciding whether to do an episode on that. But we're going to see what happens, and then I will pick back up with my analysis of what I believe the consequences of this new constitution may be, particularly as it relates to the Power Five's re-engagement with Congress, the future of amateurism and its relationship to antitrust litigation, and then how this infractions and enforcement process is going to evolve under Power Five leadership. And I'm going to dispense with talking about this new structure as a divisional structure. This is about the Power Five and the rest of the NCAA, and the Power Five are now in the driver's seat, and that will become, I think, more and more apparent as the Division I Transformation Committee does its work between January 7th and then August, which is the next big NCAA meeting, so there'll be a lot to follow there. But I wanted to talk a little bit about something that just came up and. I try not to be reactive to news stories. Occasionally, I, I need to be, particularly when it relates to NCAA action and and legal decisions and things that are happening in Congress. But I, I really try to stay out of the, the day-to-day stuff, in part because it's almost impossible to keep up with. And it's so easy to get sucked into the message board mentality. But There was a story that came out on New Year's Day, the big uh, bowl game day, and it revolved around some comments made by two well-known ESPN football analysts, I guess they call them analysts. One is Kirk Herbstreet, and a lot of people know who he is, and then the other is Desmond Howard, and he too is very well-known. But on New Year's Day, Herbstreet and Howard were part of a four-man team doing the game day coverage, and familiar with ESPN, you know what that is, what that song and dance is. I don't even know where they were located, but they were 
in coats and, and gloves, so it looked like it was somewhere cold. And they spend the whole day talking about the the game that's coming up. But on New Year's Day, I think they're really trying to cover all of these bowl games. So they had their work cut, cut out for them. And a lot of the stuff on this game day panel is ad-libbed. I don't know if they have talking points or during breaks, if they talk about raising issues just to try to keep the viewers interested and try to keep the conversation moving. But I think it's a challenge. And I'll just say this before I get into their comments or actual comments, and then why I think they're significant and some things that, that they say about the, the bigger business model and the values that are inculcated in the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and how they express those values in ways that are a little bit disguised, but reinforce the commercial interests of the power players. And in this case, it's ESPN and its relationship to the ball games. But I'll just say this about these announcers. That is not an easy job, I don't think. And a lot of people look at that and say, oh gosh, anybody could do that. I could do that. No, I don't think you could. I think it's very difficult and a lot of it's, a, you know, skill-based. It's a skill set and it's a very high-level skill set because these guys are multitasking. And then in these freeform shows, allocating talk time and trying to keep the conversation moving, all that's challenging. And they got people talking in their ear and they have to manage the commercial breaks. They're also having to think on multiple levels because if they say something stupid... <laughs> then they're going to have to wind up explaining themselves. And, and that's sort of what happened here. You know, when you're hosting this kind of show and you have all this airtime, there's a real good chance you're going to say some stupid stuff. <laughs> Either stuff that people who really understand the game would sneer at, or in this case, something that turns out to be way more controversial than you thought it might be when the words come out of your mouth. You know, this is live TV, so these guys don't get to go back and edit out the bad stuff. They're stuck with it. I have enormous respect for what they do. I'm not suggesting that it's an easy job in any way, shape, or form. And they're very good at it. These guys are very good at it. But anyway, so they're talking about these players. Herb Street initiated the conversation, and then Howard jumped in. The other two panelists, I think, were, eh, I'm not sure I want to go there. But Herb Street, who played college football, he was a very good college player. And of course, Howard was the Heisman Trophy winner and had a really nice NFL career. These guys understand the game. They know the game. They speak from a position of experience, both as players and then as analysts. But Herb Street was saying, you have all these players who have opted out of the bowl games because they did not want to get hurt. These guys, the guys who opted out are guys who have a legitimate chance of making a living as football players in the National Football League. And that is an extraordinarily competitive environment. And so few players have that opportunity. The shelf life of that opportunity is a nanosecond. These guys come and go. It's like a revolving door, and a lot of that is injury-related. And even an injury that doesn't appear to be a career-threatening injury, if it means that you're just a millisecond slower or your reaction time is just that tiny sliver less than it was because of some injury, that's the difference between making a living as a professional football player and leaving the game forever. But both Herb Street and Howard were criticizing these guys, and I didn't see it in real time. I didn't hear it in real time. I went back and looked at the video of it, and I don't think it 
was a malicious attack. I think they were just filling some airtime. But their opinions were their opinions, and I think they were pretty clear, and I think they were absolutely wrong. And they got some blowback, and then Herb Street tried to walk back the comment, but he didn't really. So (laughs) I give him a pass for the initial comment because of the context, but then he had some time to think about it later in the day, six hours later, and I have no doubt he consulted with the ESPN folks, and he basically came back and said, I painted uh, with too broad a brush, but pretty much believe what I said. That's how I interpreted it. So he didn't really offer any meaningful additional commentary. But uh, let's see, let me go to the actual transcript here. He's, so Herb Street's talking about these players that opted out, these really good players, who many of whom were playing in inconsequential bowls. And one of the themes that has evolved is that with this college football playoff and the fact that you now have a true national championship, a way to decide a true national champion in in college football, the bowl games are less relevant because before the CFP, a bowl game, one of the major bowl games, could determine who the national champion was based on the vote of associated press writers in the final poll. And you could have the top two teams playing in different ball games. And if they both won, then whoever performed the best in that ball game is the national champion. So the bowl structure had far more consequence, really, before the CFP. And so there's this discussion, particularly since people are talking about expanding the CFP to go to eight teams or 12 teams or all kinds of formulas that are floating out there. But with this more clear-cut national championship format, the bowl games have less relevance. And that was the context for Herb Street's comments. But he was saying that even with an expanded CFP that might entice these players to play because then they're actually playing for a national championship, Herbstreit was saying he didn't think that was going to make any difference because these players just don't love football. And let's see, what did he say? He said, isn't that what we do as football players? We compete? I don't know if changing it, expanding it is going to change anything. I really don't. I think this era of players just doesn't love football. And it wasn't like some in-your-face comment. And Herb Street's not a in-your-face kind of guy. But even from him, there's a, there's a little cringe there when you hear it in real time. And then he goes to Howard. He sends it down to Howard, who's at the other end of the desk. And Howard chimes in by explaining why the bowls were important before the CFP. And he's making some observations that make sense and I think really explain why these players might have an incentive not to play in these ball games. But then he lands with this with this old school stuff and he says, their whole mentality right now is about the championship, the playoff. We've got to get into the CFP and because of that, they don't value the ball games. When we were coming up, Herb Street and myself, to go to a ball game was a fantastic season. That's what it meant. And I was with him up till then, and yeah, I agree with all that. And when I'm watching this, I'm thinking, okay, well, now Howard's going to really take down the ridiculousness of the bowl season and these bowls that are putting teams on the field with six and six records or even five and seven records. But no, he doesn't go there. He comes back around and plays the entitlement card. These athletes are entitled. And that was just unfortunate. And there was a media blowback. Because ESPN owns the broadcast rights to the CFP. The ESPN was a driving force in getting the CFP. And they have this long-term multi-billion dollar contract with tie-ins for the New Year's ball games. So you've got this 
product is bringing in at least half a billion dollars a year that ESPN is benefiting from directly. And they're making the argument that an athlete who sits out of a ball game to protect his professional career because they are not eligible for this CFP because their team didn't make it in the top four, that that kid's a bad actor. That kid is quitting on his team, that he's quitting on the sport. The other thing that's important to note for context is that there are, I think, 40-ish bowl games every year now. That's more than twice the number that existed in the mid-90s. And a lot of that has to do with ESPN because ESPN has been very aggressive in the ball market. And they actually, as a practical matter, monopolize the college football bowl market. So they have all the CFP, they have the New Year's Day bowls. And then for the remaining bowls, ESPN either outright owns those bowls. I think they own 14 of them. Or they have the broadcast rights for them. And they have this affiliated company called ESPN Events, I think, that all this bowl stuff runs through. But ESPN essentially monopolizes the bowl market. And the uh, bowl programming consistently outperforms competing sports programming in those time slots. So they have found a way to turn a buck on it. But when you look at all of the interests, the people who have skin in the game in these inconsequential bowls, the athletes' interests come dead last, as is always the case. And I think for people who understand that dynamic, that is why Herb Street and Howard's comments were really so offensive. And because of the structure of the bowl market, these comments were just the product of a massive, massive conflict of interest. And that's true for almost all ESPN commentary when it comes to college football because they monopolize the college football marketplace for all intents and purposes. And I've talked about this before and these relationships with the big time conferences, they own the SEC network, the ACC network, the Longhorn Network. They have the regular season programming packages with the the big conferences. And then, of course, they own the postseason. They own the championship football season. So any commentary from ESPN like this that selectively criticizes people in the business model, particularly the athletes whose labor is indispensable, is the product of just profound conflicts of interest. And I think that a lot of fans, particularly younger fans, they understand that mostly at the intuitive level, but a lot of them really at the substantive level because they understand how deep ESPN is into all of these products and I rarely go to the message boards, but I went to a few. And there wasn't a ton of stuff out there. Some of it's the news cycle. Some of it's the holidays. But some of it is that ESPN's dominance as the primary source for sports news. And for a lot of sports consumers, if they don't get it from ESPN, it doesn't exist and it's not credible. You know, And that's one of the problems here. And that gives these comments by Herb Street and Howard even more power in those circles. And on these message boards, people obviously picked up on ESPN's conflict of interest and the fact that the very thing that they're complaining about here, this college football playoff format, is one of ESPN's most lucrative products. But then the other thing that really wasn't lost on the message board commentators was that this year with this ridiculous 
ridiculous coaching carousel and the hyperinflation of coaching salaries, even for coaches who've never sat in the captain's chair, they're getting mid seven figure salaries and some bumping up to close to $10 million a year. And some of the coaches who got those big salaries were coaches coming from prominent schools who had good seasons and were really competitive. A couple were actually in the hunt for the CFP, including Notre Dame. And I guess you could make the case for Oklahoma going down the stretch. But then you had the Notre Dame coach, Brian Kelly, going to LSU. And then you had Lincoln Riley, the coach at Oklahoma, going to USC to take more money to pursue and preserve and protect their personal commercial interests. You didn't hear boo from Herb Street or Howard about that. They left their teams in the lurch. They went and took the money and these ESPN analysts chose to focus on the small number of athletes who chose not to play to avoid the possibility that they could have a career-altering or career-ending injury. And those are entirely rational decisions under the existing business model, and in particular, the existing postseason football business model that is in large part the product of the greed of the institutions and the market participants just like ESPN. And so I just want to make uh, a few observations observations here on this because it's going to be a segue into some of the things I'm going to be talking about early in 2022. And those are going to focus in more detail on some of these labor issues and, and labor rights and the true relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of that labor, including broadcast media outlets and massive entertainment enterprises like ESPN, which is owned by ABC. And ABC, of course, is owned by Disney. And again, they're a business and they can do whatever they want to. In the last episode, I was talking about how they had been very successful in managing their role and their prominent role in college sports and trying to adapt and change and you know stay ahead of the market and make good decisions. And these are good business decisions because, again, these bowl games appear to have some market value and at least in terms of viewership have outperformed other sports programming. But I want to talk first about one of these games that occurred on January 1st. And this is a game in which the CFP has a tie-in. So the college football playoff LLC, the company, that runs the college football playoff, has a tie-in with all these major bowls, including the Sugar Bowl. And it's a big, lucrative bowl. I'm not quite sure what the payout is, and but all that money goes into the CFP pot. They get, I think, $450 million from the actual playoff games and then from all these bowl tie-ins with, I think, it's six bowls. They generate hundreds of millions in additional revenue. So we're probably talking about seven, $800 million in total revenue in the, the CFP postseason football bonanza. But in this year's Sugar Bowl, Baylor played Old Miss. Both had great seasons, and I'm not sure either school was really in the discussion about getting a CFP playoff slot. But they had great seasons, and on paper, it looks like a, a pretty good bowl game. And Old Miss has a quarterback, an upperclassman named Matt Corral, who, according to experts, will be a clear-cut consensus first-round draft pick in the NFL draft. And so one of these ranking services has him as the number 23 overall prospect. And then an ESPN 
analyst has him at 16. So he's looking at an NFL career and assuming that everything goes according to plan, he's going to be playing on Sundays. And that's his dream. And this entire recruiting process in big-time football and in big-time basketball is designed specifically to provide platforms for that opportunity. That's one of the biggest selling points in recruiting. So that's part of this business model. But this uh, game that Ole Miss lost, 21-7, to but in the first quarter of that game, Corral goes down with a leg injury. And I saw a video of it, and he, when he went down, it wasn't looking good, and he was in extraordinary pain. It turned out to be a severe ankle sprain. But even those can be really tricky injuries that can have long-term consequences. But this is an article from ESPN. The same day that Herb Street and Howard are making these comments, we get this article from an ESPN reporter that does this feel-good story about Corral and comments by his head coach, Lane Kiffin. And I'm not even going to Get into a discussion of Kiffin, not a huge fan, and he's a a journeyman. He's a journeyman coach, and he bounces all around, and he's the very kind of coach who would leave in a nanosecond if he got paid a penny more to buy another school. But he, he wants to talk about that injury, and here's what he says. That's obviously a difficult situation, especially when a kid's playing in the game. So my mind raced with a lot of thoughts right there, you know, and that's just my love for him. Just like I would if it was my own son in that situation. You know, maybe I didn't do a great enough job with this team because, you know, I was really hurting for him in that situation because I know how much he's put into it, how much it means to him. And for that to be taken away like that, you know, it really sucks. (laughs) I don't even know how to try to analyze what Kiffin said here. Some of it's just incomprehensible coach speak. But I I think when he first started talking, I think he might have been flirting with saying, God, I hope it's not a serious injury because this kid's got a career. That's the, the feel it had. And then he brings it back around to, gosh, if it was my own son in that situation, I'm just looking at him like he's my own son. And for that to be taken away like that, it really sucks. I'm not quite sure what Kiffin meant by that, if he meant the opportunity to participate in what is ultimately a meaningless bowl game. I don't think this bowl game is going to go down in the record books at Ole Miss as a nice feather in their cap. They made it to a nice bowl game and they lost. What would have sucked more if Matt Corral had a career-threatening injury. Imagine that instead of a sprained ankle, and again, we don't know how serious it is or whether it's going to have any consequence to him, but if he had a crushed leg or a crushed ankle, and all of a sudden he is no longer a first-round draft choice or maybe not even a draftable player at all, then what? Is it just going to really suck, Lane? Is that what it's going to be because he didn't get to finish that game? Or is it going to really suck because he's playing in a game of little consequence and his professional career is now over? And then if you decide next year that you just want to bolt if you have a good season and you want to bolt for more money before the bowl game espn is going to say hey this is this a great country or what lane kiffin's doing exactly what any of us would do in that situation he is protecting his market value he is maximizing his market value and he's going to another job that pays more money good for him god bless america you don't hear that from ESPN when an athlete makes an identical decision. And it's not actually identical because 
these athletes are, are opting out of these games just to preserve the opportunity to make a living playing football. And it's very uncertain because of the extraordinarily competitive nature of professional football and how difficult it is to get one of those coveted spots on a small roster. So the difference in the treatment of those two participants in the big-time college sports marketplace is just yet another example of how dysfunctional this marketplace really is. And that Kiffin quote will be a good segue into the next thing I want to talk about, and that is what the interests in a big-time college football get out of the, the bowl season. And let's start with the coaches, since I was just talking about Kiffin. Kiffin has a pretty nice deal, sweet deal with Ole Miss. He gets paid a base salary of $7.25 million that increases a hundred grand a year and then he gets a minimum of 3.5 million per year for support staff and then uh, Kiffin will get an additional 200 grand if the team sells at least 40,000 season tickets that's a no-brainer then he gets a hundred and fifty thousand dollar bonus for each win against an SEC team that kicks in at five wins so for every win against an SEC team over five he gets a $150,000 bonus. And then if he plays a Power 5 school out of conference and wins, he gets a hundred grand for that. This article that I'm looking at, this was uh, a Sports Illustrated article, didn't talk about his bowl bonuses, but they are in his contract. I don't know how much they are. But these coaches also get bonuses one for making it to a ball game, and then more money if they win the ball game. And in some of these contracts, they tier the balls, and if you make it to X bowl, you get X amount of money. It's, it's, but the coaches have enormous incentive, and it is financial incentive to play along with this charade that these balls, particularly the lower tier balls, are worth playing at all. So that's the the coach's interest. Then we have the institutional interests. And one of the selling points for a, a lot of these balls, even for the lower level balls, is that they'll guarantee that the school gets paid something. But beyond that, it's free advertising. So you have those two things, money and free advertising. The things that schools always want because that goes directly to the things that universities crave, power, prestige, publicity, social currency, loyalty, which translates into money. That's what this is all about. And that runs through marketing and branding in the 21st century. And then, of course, ESPN, as the broadcaster, gets gets paid money from advertisers. And the more bowl games you have, the more advertisers you have, and the more money you make. And then the host cities have skin in this game. So all these bowls are sponsored. The sponsors have games. So I'm going to do the host and the sponsors together. You basically purchase the right to use your name and you could be some pissant company but if you come in with enough money you get a name attached to that ball game and even if it's just for a couple of years you get some nice publicity for that and then the host cities what do they get they get commerce they get free advertising and these cities are benefiting from a chamber of commerce standpoint this is the chamber of commerce view of the ball games so all these in system interests that are benefiting financially from the bowl system have incentive to preserve the status quo and to criticize any athlete who may draw down on the value of that product. And then, of course, we have 
the athletes. And if the athletes use the same criteria to make their decision about uh, whether to participate in a bowl game, then they get the Herb Street and Howard treatment. They get shamed on national TV. It's a system of perverse incentives. And there was a time back in the day when schools really looked at the bowl games the way that Desmond Howard initially was talking about them as a true reward, something that had value. And there were times that teams, this is outside of the individual player issue, and I understand there's a distinction there, but in terms of the significance of the bowls and what they mean to the athletes and to the institutions and, and to the people that have some skin in the game, there was a time when a team that felt like either they didn't have a good enough season to justify playing in a bowl or if they got snubbed, essentially, they didn't get a, a bowl game that they thought they deserved, they would take a team vote and they would opt out. And that was viewed as a decision of honor, not a decision of self-interest. And I don't think teams are really taking team votes anymore. And the history of bowl refusals is really interesting, and it covers a lot of different scenarios. And there, there are some honorable examples. In 1958, the University of Buffalo declined an invitation to play in the Tangerine Bowl, which was in Florida, because Buffalo had two African-American players, and the bowl wouldn't allow those players to play. And so the team didn't even have to come to a vote. They just said, hell no, we're not, we're not coming down, up yours. And they did the right thing, and they said no to the bowl. And you've had circumstances where Notre Dame declined a bowl invitation, I think in 2009, after Charlie Weiss left. They were six and six. And I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but a proud program like Notre Dame playing in a, a bowl that's fit for a six and six team, it's beneath them. And they should have said no. And they should have said no, not as a rejection of that particular bowl, but as a statement that they have higher standards than that. And so this old school argument that Herb Street and Howard were making is absurd on its face. Because if you really want to go old school and you want to look at the history of bowl acceptances and bowl refusals, most of them have revolved around some values that made sense and were defensible from a moral standpoint. And you compare that to the reasons why we have 40 plus balls and we're allowing teams that have losing records to compete in these balls. And I don't know what teams feel. It would be interesting to know if you were to call a team vote, and I don't think these decisions are driven by teams because the institutional interests are so important and the incentives for the coaches and the institutions and everybody who's drinking from the trough of big-time college football, they are so powerful that they're not going to leave those business decisions, and they are business decisions, to the athletes. But what would the athletes say? That would be interesting to know. But some of the things they might be considering are that they'll have to have another month of football practice. They're going to not be able to spend time with their family. They are, particularly in the COVID era, where in order to remain eligible and have a team that, that actually can take the field, they're subjected to really draconian testing protocols that I think just suck down on the morale of these teams. And what are they weighing that against? They're weighing that against the opportunity to go to some place. It may not be a, a very fancy place. It may not be 
a very interesting place, but they get to go somewhere, play a football game on national TV. And at most of these bowl games, there are exceptions made for gifts to athletes. So they can get some swag and some of the swag can be pretty nice stuff. So that's the decision that they're making. But if you put that those bowl games to a vote for teams that are five and seven or six and six or six and five or seven and five, they could very reasonably say no. In the grand cost benefit analysis, this is this doesn't make sense for us from our perspective. And that would be an honorable decision. It wouldn't be a, a crime against the college football gods. It wouldn't be an insult to those who have come before them. And contrary to the old school propaganda of Herb Street and Howard, they wouldn't be saying that they don't love football or that they are entitled to something that this particular bowl game couldn't give them. That's not what they would be saying. They would be making an intelligent decision. They could just as easily be rooted in honorable principles rather than selfishness. And if these players just looked at the whole bowl system outside of the CFP that they didn't create, they didn't create this bowl system. This system was created by a bunch of rich white guys sitting around tables trying to find a, a way to squeeze another nickel out of these performers that they think they have absolute control over. And if they don't go along and do the dance, then they're the bad actors. And that was the, the broad brush narrative that was spun by these ESPN announcers. But if these athletes or the teams look at the absurdity of the bowl system, particularly in the in lower tier bowls, and they just say on principle, our interests in not playing outweigh your financial interests in trying to force us to play. And as a matter of principle, we are voting not to play. That is a principle decision. It's just coming at these uh, issues from a fundamentally different standpoint. And to attack the thinking that these players brought into their decisions on old school moral grounds makes a mockery of those old school philosophies, like earning what you get like not getting the participation trophy, like playing a game because it is a meaningful game. And these ball games, by their very definition, by their very purpose, are supposed to be games that match teams that have had really high-achieving seasons and it is to showcase the success that they had in that season so they can compete against each other. That doesn't exist anymore when you're putting five and seven teams against six and six teams. And in this COVID era, you're out putting open bids to any team that will try to cobble together a roster to come in and fill out a, a bowl matchup on the fly because a team COVID tested out of the bowl game. This was an absurd season, and you had teams jumping in there just because they could, not because they earned it. So if you're going to rely on old school values, then you need to bring a little more to the table. And another thing that's important to point out is that the criteria for bowl selection has changed dramatically over the years, and that bar has gotten lower and lower since the mid-1990s, but that's done by the NCAA. So even though the NCAA has really no skin in the game financially in big-time college football, it still has a role in terms of certifying bowls and certifying the criteria for bowl eligibility. And that has been a race to the bottom and challenging any player's commitment to the game, their love for the game in this 
dysfunctional, ridiculous system that is built almost exclusively around corporate interests, financial interests, and institutional interests, rather than the interests of the athletes who provide the talent and the labor, just doesn't pass the blush test. And on this race to the bottom in terms of bowl eligibility and then the overall quality of the mosaic of bowl games every year. I want to draw an analogy to what happened in basketball because now college football is looking at really two types of products now in the postseason. You have the CFP, which is really all that matters. Then you have these bowl games. Even the New Year's bowl games that have pretty good teams competing against each other. But those are evolving into two different markets, and the perception of those two products is going to change, and they're going to grow further and further apart. That's exactly what happened in basketball, and for the same reasons. A lot of people don't remember, because you have to have been on this earth for quite a while to remember, that Back in the earlier iterations of the NCAA basketball tournament, I think the first tournament was in 1938, but then as it started to evolve and pick up more energy and credibility and market share, it was competing head-to-head with the NIT, the National Invitational Tournament. And really up until the 1970s, the NIT was just as prestigious as the NCAA tournament. And one of the reasons for that is that up until the 1970s, you had to win your conference in order to qualify for the NCAA tournament. And in many seasons, you had some of the best teams in the country not winning their conference championship, particularly if it was determined by a conference tournament and there was some fluke and the best team lost and then they're sitting on the sidelines. Those great teams couldn't go to the NCAA tournament and they wound up in the NIT. And in some years, the NIT actually had as good a field than the NCAA. And the best example of that actually changed the NCAA's thinking on the qualifying criteria for the tournament was the 1974 Maryland team that lost to the eventual national champion, NC State, in what some believe was one of the best ACC championship games in history. But that team was clearly one of the best teams in the country, and a lot of people thought they were the best team in the country. They were denied the opportunity to compete for a national championship because only NC State then was qualified to represent the ACC. And it's also important to point out that Maryland was invited to the NIT, and they declined the invitation. And I don't think it was specifically an up yours to the NIT. IT, I think it was just a sense that they deserve to be playing in that NCAA tournament to compete for a national championship. And anything beyond that was beneath this team in this season. And I think it was viewed by most people as an act of honor not an act of childish defiance. That's because that team had very high standards and expectations, and they didn't want to let go of those. Those were more important than just suiting up for a meaningless game in the National Invitational Tournament. So the following year, for the first time ever, the NCAA allowed what are called at-large bids, and they awarded those to, to good teams who didn't win their conference championship, but who deserved to be in the tournament. It was a small number. The tournament from that point forward just grew and grew. And then with the Board of Regents decision, when the NCAA lost its football money and its football empire, 
it immediately shifted to trying to maximize revenue out of the men's basketball tournament, and the field exploded. And in 2010, when CBS was really sucking wind under that contract and ESPN was thinking about buying it out or going in with CBS, there were talks of expanding the tournament field to 96. Why do you do that? Because you make more money. You televise more games, you sell more advertising, you sell more tickets, and at least theoretically, you are generating more revenue. That was the reason for the expansion of the tournament, not because there was a genuine belief that the 68th team that got into the tournament was going to be a legitimate contender for the national championship. It's an absurd proposition on its face. And in the current iteration of March Madness, you could say that for half of the tournament field, particularly automatic qualifiers from these low-level conferences. But what you had as that tournament became more accessible, the NIT became really a loser's tournament. And the prestige of the NIT declined in direct proportion to the expansion of the NCAA tournament. Because you have teams that have no business competing for a national championship, who have no chance of winning a national championship in the tournament field for reasons that have nothing to do with the honor and integrity of the tournament, but with market value and commercial value and fan appeal. Part of this tournament now, and one of the, its most powerful commercial narratives, is the, the upset, the David and Goliath narrative. And that has enormous market value, and it happens occasionally. In any tournament of that size, there are going to be some upsets, some bigger than others, but has a 13, 14, 15, 16 seed ever won the NCAA tournament? No, of course not. In fact, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think the lowest seed ever to win the NCAA tournament was Villanova in 1985, and they beat uh, Georgetown in that classic championship game. But Villanova was a pretty good team, and the Big East was a pretty doggone good conference. That's the outlier, a number eight seed from one of the best basketball conferences in the history of college basketball, winning a national championship and, and running the table. I think the better question is, why was that Villanova team seeded number eight? He probably should have been seated higher. And then this falls into the you can't make this stuff up category. But as the NIT started to lose market share and market value as the NCAA tournament expanded, the owners of the NIT sued the NCAA under antitrust laws claiming that the tournament field expansion for the NCAA tournament was specifically designed to put the NIT out of business and that the NCAA essentially compelling its member institutions to choose the NCAA tournament over the NIT had a similar anti-competitive effect. And in 2005, the NCAA just said, screw it, we're just going to kill the snake. And they settled the case and purchased the NIT for, I don't know, $50, $60 million. So they now own the NIT, which means they have an absolute monopoly over the televised basketball championship market. They literally own college basketball's postseason. But the, the important thing to understand about what happened in basketball is that all of those changes to the postseason tournament play and the market were driven almost exclusively by greed and self-interest and money. These tournaments don't have a 
damn thing to do with honor or principle or achievement or any values-based justification for the current format of these basketball tournaments. They are rooted in money. And the more games you televise, the more advertising you sell, the better package you can bring to CBS or Turner or theoretically at least some other market participant who might be able to bid on the product, although given the long-term contract between CBS Turner and the NCAA, I don't see that happening. I've talked quite a bit about that. But this is not a values-based market. It is a market rooted in money. And this goes back to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, where in that 2006 State of the Association speech, he said that the NCAA had an absolute duty to maximize the value in its media broadcast contracts, so long as we take all that money and then we send it to downstream beneficiaries. That's the thinking that goes into these postseason tournaments. And that's been the case in basketball for a long time now. And now we have this new thing in football, and it's going to follow the same pattern for the same reasons. You're going to have an expanded CFP. I don't think there's any question that that's going to happen. The bowl games are going to be the NIT, and they're going to become less and less valuable. And ESPN is just in a trade-off. They own all of those products, so they're going to make money one way or another right now in this existing market. So as the value of the CFP goes up, they get that money. And if there's a corresponding decrease in the value of the bowl games, then They lose that money, but in the aggregate, they're going to make a good business decision. I think that's a net win for ESPN. And just as with basketball, the more that big-time football relies on the CFP format, the bigger it gets and the more market value it has and the more interest it it attracts, the less compelling any values-based argument is in the justification for the postseason football market, the championship bowl game market. And that's one of the reasons why it just intuitively, I think, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way with Herb Street and Howard's comments, because those products, the entire postseason bowl format product doesn't have a damn thing to do with values. And in that regard, it's going to be interesting as the Power Five take over the throne of college sports regulation, voluntary college sports regulation through this constitution committee and this constitutional makeover and the NCAA is on the back burner. It's going to be the Power Five's values that are going to be under the microscope now, not NCAA values, because I think as this new governance model takes shape, it's going to become pretty clear that this is a Power Five show and more specifically a Power Five football show, no matter how the Power Five try to disguise it. And they've done that for decades by staying under the NCAA umbrella. But now these are going to be power five values. And the public face of that is going to be in large measure ESPN, because ESPN is a power five network when it comes to college football, with the power five basically running the NCAA. If ESPN is going to try to cover for people like Herb Street and Howard who are putting out these patently absurd values-based arguments in a business model that doesn't have a thing to do with values outside of making money, then they're going to be walking a tightrope. And it's going to be interesting to see how they do that. And they certainly are capable of it. And One of the interesting things about ESPN is that it plays two sides of this coin. On the one hand, it's kind of hip and counterculture, and they are such a powerful market actor that they have the ability to take pot shots at the business model and make it appear as if they are all on board with the way that younger fans look at the business model. 
But then on the flip side of that, you have ESPN appealing to the old school mentality. And that comes through most clearly in the way that they stage the actual live product, the actual games and the actual tournaments. And once you're in that world, it is all about traditional old school values. You don't hear a word of criticism about the business model. That is, I think, Orwellian kind of dissonance there, the double think where you're holding two completely inconsistent thoughts in your head at the same time. ESPN has honed that dissonance to really an art form, and that operates on multiple levels. And there's a book that was written in 2000 by a guy named Murray Sperber, who was a professor at Indiana. I think he's retired now, Indiana University. He has been an outspoken critic of big-time college sports. And the book is titled Beer and Circus, How Big-Time College Sports is Crippling Undergraduate Education. And Sperber tries to do a takedown of big-time college sports. He also wrote a book called College Sports, Inc. in, in a similar vein. And the reason I find this book so interesting is that most of it really is a critique of the dysfunction in higher education more broadly that exists independent of big-time college sports. But Sperber, he tried to make the argument that all of these structural dysfunctions in higher education that really have absolutely nothing to do with uh, big-time college sports at the operational level, that they were the product of this monomaniacal focus on fielding winning teams in football and men's basketball. But he, he looks at some of the social influences, and he does a chapter titled The NCAA, The Tube, and The Fans, and he talks quite a bit about ESPN. And Sperber makes, I think, a pretty persuasive case about this duality that exists with ESPN and these two markets that it's trying to appeal to, the hip, young, more cynical, skeptical crowd, and then the true believers, the old school people on the other hand, and how they have found a way to market those two worlds together and really have it both ways in terms of uh, getting their message out and having it accepted. And, and part of that is this buy the ticket, take the ride mentality where you submit to an alternate reality. It just makes no sense at all. Sperber uses the Sports Center show, which is, was really a foundational show for ESPN early and probably the, the single program that gave it a lot of its appeal. But they played on this dissonance and this Orwellian contradiction between criticizing in a humorous way, making parody of some of the absurdities in big-time college sports, but at the same time reinforcing the old-school values through sentimental appeals. And then when you got to the actual programming itself, the live games, this really valuable live content, it was all about playing it right down the line of traditional values and the NCAA view of the world. In Sperber's formulation of that dissonance, he thought that it disguised the corruption that existed in big-time college sports, not in the business model, but in the ways that it was corrupting the values of higher education. And you had these players that were constantly in scandal and these coaches who were breaking the rules and you had all this corruption that is being celebrated 
on national TV through ESPN's very effective, but in Sperber's view, cynical marketing and manipulation of the audience. But you had this doublethink, this absurdity there on the screen where you have on national television, college sports fans who are otherwise reasonable people cheering on these performers and the producers of the product who are corrupt in Sperber's view and have no business being a part of higher education. They make a mockery of the values of higher education. And I don't agree with that. I have a much different view of the hypocrisy and the dissonance. And it is in the business model. And that is you have this duality with ESPN where you have some people criticizing the business model, but it is a very narrow niche market, ultimately drowned out by ESPN's commercial interests. And one of the points that Sperber suggests, and I agree with him on this, and that is that these major sports media outlets, and ESPN in particular because of their market dominance, they're so secure in their market power that they can afford to create this illusion that they actually are offering legitimate critique of this very product that they're making a boatload of money from. For me, though, the dissonance isn't with the corrupting influences of big-time sports on higher education. It is within the business model and the hypocrisy of this massive corporate enterprise that is built on the exploitation of largely African-American laborers. So when ESPN's playing the old school side of the coin of this hypocrisy, and they are shouting down and calling out athletes who are making intelligent business decisions in a business model, in a business transaction, in a business world. And that business world and that business model wasn't created by these athletes. It was created by the ESPNs in the market and by the NCAA and all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that view college sports as a free ticket to all the things that universities crave and then all the things that broadcast media outlets want to sell. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode and address how these athletes were treated by ESPN commentators is that as we start talking more about what the options are for athletes, the realistic options to promote their rights, particularly when the Power Five comes back to Congress and is making the same arguments that the NCAA made in 2019, 2020, and early 21 to completely shut down the athletes' rights movement through federal intervention. I think you're going to see and hear narratives that try to isolate and criticize these athletes, just like what we saw from Herb Street and Howard. And when you start talking about collective bargaining or unionization or self-help, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries go ballistic. That happened in 2014 with this Northwestern uh, football attempt at unionization. And I've talked about that in prior episodes, but the backlash, the coordinated backlash against some of those Northwestern athletes was just a little appetizer for what you're likely to see if these labor-oriented self-help issues are put on the table and analyzed as legitimate options for athletes. All right. Well, that's going to close it out. 
for this episode. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.